0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast, with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Dr. Sean Gregg is a practicing general surgeon in Red Deer, Alberta. Dr. Gregg has a fascinating life story and is a superb surgical educator. In this episode, we get his thoughts on creativity, entrepreneurship, and advocacy in surgery. Dr. Gregg, thank you so much for coming on Cold Steel and and joining us on the podcast. Can you tell us, for those listeners who don't know you as well, uh, where you grew up and what your training pathway was?
2: Yeah, you bet. Um, So I'm uh, an Alberta guy. I uh, I grew up rurally, just south of Calgary, kind of on the edge of uh, Kananaska's country. Uh, my dad trained horses, so we had a bit of a farm. Um, and then uh, my first degree was in um, in Edmonton at the U of A, and that degree was actually in in physics. Um, and then um, I actually started a a master's program that I never finished and, uh, some other detours along the way before, um, doing my MD at, uh, U of C, And that's where I finished, uh, my general surgery residency as well. And then uh, I practiced for about three years and then, uh, I went back and joined, uh, Chad Ball and Elijah Dixon, Francis Sutherland, and, uh, Oliver Bates for some, uh, remedial work in hepatobiliary surgery. And then, uh, Came back to work in Red Deer, and I've been there well ever since. So about eight years since then.
0: Sean, we know you, uh, you know quite well in Calgary, and, and I think we talk lots, and we always uh, always appreciate. Uh, all your contributions academically, clinically, and, and, and so on, um, that you give to us. But you know, I'm not going to let you sidestep the word detours without tell- <laughs> telling us about some of those detour stories. And, and, uh, I think, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, you, you're such a remarkable guy and you, and you think, um, think about life and you think about surgery maybe a little differently and I mean that as a compliment to, to most of us we're pretty linear so I was wondering if you, if you could tell us some of those stories and, and maybe how they impacted your your career either a good or or a bad way
2: yeah you know I um you know I uh, like all of us I often get patients ask me um why I became a surgeon why I choose to do what I'm doing usually I'm doing a colonoscopy at the time they ask me but. Uh, you know my answer is always the same i I just tell them i was uh, i wasn't good at anything else you know i I tried all kinds of things um so as i say my my first degree was in physics. Well and we then, know that's not true you're, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> my observation is that you're good at everything you do my My first degree was in physics, which is a fascinating discipline right it was it's theoretical physics, not um, you know useful or applied physics and uh you know, it wasn't long into my first degree that I realized that there was no career path in physics that was uh, interesting or exciting to me. You know, I think uh, you could you could uh, teach physics to other people, or you could be in an underground lair in Switzerland or something like that, and and none of those really appealed to me. But at the time, I I was uh, interested in international development, and I had done a, a development project as a student in um, in South America in Guyana. I spent a summer down there and. And, uh, uh, I applied for a scholarship in my third year of my physics degree. That was a, a great scholarship. I'm sure nobody else applied. It was sort of back of the book, but it was funded by a Canadian development agency and it, it would pay for, uh, me to study anywhere in the world for a year, uh, as long as it was the developing wow. world.
0: Wow.
2: And, uh. It was a killer opportunity, right? And so I, I got the scholarship, and they flew me out to Ottawa with some other Canadians. And um, um, what I did was I, I applied to the University of Zimbabwe, and um, was partly out of an interest of the pro- one of the programs they had there, but also uh, was excited to, to see Africa. And uh, not long before I left, the University of Zimbabwe closed. It's... Uh, it was about ninety-eight, ninety-nine, and there was just a, a lot of civil unrest. And they, they closed the university, as most universities uh, are a, a hub of um, dissenting thought.
0: So just to be clear, you personally didn't close the university. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the story's just beginning. Just, just stay tuned. No, no. So then, you know, I had to detour, and so I, um, I enrolled in a master's. Program in uh, Durban in South Africa, and that was uh, was like a master's degree in managing uh, development projects, right? So the study of um, uh, an industry I suppose that I'd never really been been um, aware of or appreciating prior to. Um, and so you know I headed down there and I mean it was a pretty formative years for me, right? I was about. 19 i remember arriving in the johannesburg airport catching a connector to durban and uh this little old lady was sitting next to me and she kind of took an interest in me and i told her what i was up to and why i was there and she said well the first thing you need to do when you get to campus is buy a gun and uh you know i was i was, <laughs> I was visibly taken aback and uh usually sort of realized uh that maybe I wasn't ready for that step, right? And she said, oh, well, you know, oh. if you don't want to buy a gun, they'll show you how to make one. And uh, I, I was not at all reassured by that. But, in fact, I did learn two different ways to, to make a, a gun at home while uh, on campus in South Africa. Wow. But I, so I did a semester. I You know, I did a semester mm-hmm. studying development, and um, I just became disillusioned with the, the field of development, and I had a lot of phil- philosophical objections. I was more philosophical at the time, so that carried more weight, I guess. Anyways, I I was going to leave the program, but um, through another bizarre sequence of events, I ended up on the university chess team, and they were paying for me to travel around playing chess uh, in tournaments, and uh, eventually I I lost at the Nationals and um, had to decide what I wanted to do. So I, um, I bought a car, I bought an old Volkswagen Beetle and loaded it up with camping gear, and I... I set off across the African savanna and uh, drove around in between semesters. So for a few months, um, put about 30,000 kilometers on that car. It broke down and we'd fix it. And, you know, we drove through rivers and under giraffes and all over Africa. And I ended up in Zimbabwe when the university opened. And uh, I basically talked my way into medical school there because, um, you know, I had my own funding and they let me audit courses. So I um I did a semester, like the first year of uh, medical school in Zimbabwe, and uh, they followed the uh, traditional Oxford curriculum that was very science-heavy, right? We did histology and a full cadaver lab, and um, you know, I got to know the professors a bit, and they let me write exams, and I did okay, and so they asked me if I wanted to stay, and I loved Zimbabwe. It was a great place to be at that time. Um, just a gem in Africa, right? A very... Stable country literate mm-hmm. it was held up in the world as um probably one of the most successful yeah. uh, uh, countries one could find at that time. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that was really the beginning of it unraveling, and so I did stay on. I stayed on another semester, and by the end of that semester, it was clear that um I was not gonna uh, be able to complete a degree there because uh, there was just more and more violence and uh, instability. So eventually I had to leave. Interestingly, though, I was collecting my scholarship in um, American dollars, and the uh, rate of inflation was such that uh, I was still paying all my expenses in Zimbabwe dollars. And so I would go to the bank with a with a backpack and get these bricks of Zimbabwean cash out to pay my tuition. But wow. I, I left Zimbabwe with way more money than I came with because it was head open budgeted and in us dollars, but paid in Zimbabwe ones. And then, uh, uh, just the, the way I had booked the, the cheapest flight in the world, I went the other way around the world to get there. And so I had to fly back through Singapore and, uh, the, the, um, the flight allowed me an indefinite layover. So I thought, great, you know, I'll get off the flight in Singapore. And I wanted to travel up through Malaysia and, uh, through Thailand and Burma to Bangladesh. But, um, I, you know, I met this artist in Northern Thailand and, um, and I thought his, he was just a street artist, you know, and he, I thought his work was so incredible. You know, he, I, I had never seen anything like it in my life. He, um, he just did charcoals, right? Like I used a powdered charcoal and uh, calligraphy brushes and uh, applied it to watercolor paper. And it was such uh realistic work, right? It, it was amazing. It was just photographic reality. This guy was incredible. He was just working in a, in a street market in Northern Thailand. And, uh, I asked him if he would teach me and, um, and he said, no, um, but I kept bugging him. You know, I came back the next day and, uh, and eventually maybe on the third day he said well how long do you have and i said well you know i've got about two weeks and uh, and he laughed in my face you know he said you know that's not even a that's not even a start we will barely even make your brushes in two weeks and so i said okay well i have two months then i said well we can probably get started in two months but it's not nearly long enough and so it, uh, the next day i I started work. I showed up and worked every single day, weekends, um, you know, Monday to Sunday uh, for actually about three months with that guy. And uh, you know, the first week we uh, we just made my brushes, and uh, and the next week, uh, and I'm telling you all this because it is. I think it is relevant to how I think about surgery. So you know, I'm hoping that that this will um, have some relevance as we. Uh, as we chat this morning, but, um, but you know, one of the first tasks he gave me was to draw an eye, right? And, you know, an eye is very detailed, and we're, we're all very sensitive to the appearance of an eye, so it does have to be fairly perfect to pass muster, right? And uh, my first eye was terrible, and I, I did a, a second eye, and I, I was pretty happy with it. And, you know, it, it had taken me probably two days to do my two eyes. And uh, he looked at it and he said, okay, uh, do a hundred eyes. Right, And he wouldn't even talk to me until i finished my, like, a hundred of them. And uh, and it took me a couple weeks, right, of just repetitively doing eyes. And some were good and some were terrible and, and so forth. But, you know, there's no question, I definitely learned all the components. You know, and every now and then he would, You know, kind of point something out. Um, And I, you know, I finally finished and uh, presented my eyes to him. And uh, he didn't even really look at them. You know, (laughs) after two two weeks of work, I was crushed. (laughs) That sounds surgical. (laughs) Yeah, he just kind (laughs) of threw them in the corner because he didn't actually care whether I. I, you know, was doing a good eye or a bad eye because, you know, that, that's my concept of how you would teach somebody, right? You'd, you know, get them to practice and show them what they did wrong. But he wasn't teaching me how to, uh, how to do an eye because it wasn't about the task of completing a hundred eyes, right? Because in my mind, that was it. I was going to get a hundred done and that was like a, a landmark. To him, it was, it was teaching me to just be absorbed in each eye right? And it's not about completing a hundred eye, it's about being absorbed in the process of each brush stroke of every part of every eye. And it doesn't matter if it takes two weeks or two years, y- you know, you just try to lose yourself in that moment, right, where the, the rest of the world melts away and you're you're just kind of uh, all you see is, you know, your eye and your hand and um, envisioning how to bring what's in your mind into reality. And, uh, Eventually, uh, you know, one of my friends at the time who owned a bar, he took all my pages of eyes and he put them up. Uh, he owned a bar. He put them up in his uh, um, next to the urinals in his uh, in his bar. Which <laughs> he thought, <laughs> wow, he thought was <laughs> hilarious at the time. Anyways, uh, you know, and I, I did spend um, three months there, and you know, I, I think I, I gained some technical proficiency there. I'm far better now than I was even leaving. Uh, Thailand back then. But I, I think the, the lesson wasn't about um, you know taking the box saying I completed this or I completed the I. It was about um, just being um, present and pursuing excellence with each brush stroke, right? And, and that the, the end result will be good if you concentrate on the details, right? And uh, and yeah, it's still it's still a hobby. I always have something on my easel that's uh, unfinished, and I you know I don't spend as much time with it as I used to. But I'd love to get back to it. So from there, I I came back to Canada, and um, I finished my degree in physics. And I kind of thought, jeez, well, uh, now what? Um, And I decided that um, you know of the things I tried, I, I really did enjoy. Medicine, and I I, uh, I wished that I could have carried on in Zimbabwe. Um, so I had written my MCAT and uh, applied to medical schools. Uh, you know, I would have applied that year, and I had a friend living in Taiwan at the time, and uh, I um, I flew over to join him. And uh, that year, I, I actually applied to medical school from. Uh, from an internet cafe in uh in taiwan and for anybody that traveled at that time internet cafes were sort of hubs of traveler culture right and you know people spoke and so i applied to medical school in a smoky internet cafe next to kids playing starcraft and, and uh i worked in taiwan that year i I, uh, I actually taught kindergarten um in an english immersion school in the mornings and uh I worked as an artist the the rest of the time, right? So I would do mostly portraits and uh, various other commission things. Um, and uh, that was a good time. I worked really hard trying to learn Chinese, but um, that really didn't stick. But it was a good time for me, right? I tried on some different hats, uh, uh, saw a different side of the world. My girlfriend at the time was living in Peru. And so I, I left Taiwan. I came back to Canada and did my uh, my medical school interviews, and then joined my girlfriend in Lima, where right. I, I studied Spanish at a University of Lima. Um, and uh, that relationship didn't work out, obviously. But um, when we uh, when we broke up, I headed off on my own. And um, in retrospect, I can't. Uh, think why why this seemed like a good idea at the time, but you know I'd I'd been traveling all over the world and I felt pretty comfortable in my own shoes, and so I decided I would cross the Andes in the north of Peru um, on my own, and there really isn't any roads up there to to get over the Andes, and at that time, which would have been about let's say 2000, it's where the Sort of the remnants of the Sendero Luminoso and the NRCA, the uh, paramilitary groups. Wow! Yeah, um, resided right. That's the the eastern slopes of the Andes is uh, is perfect uh, climate for growing cocaine, right? It's got a high elevation and lots of rainfall, and so it's mostly populated by farmers. Um, but it took me about two months to get across the andes and you know every day is a story you know i went village to village and uh, a lot of the people had never seen a white person and um eventually you'd, you'd get far enough over and um down the eastern slopes that the rivers got big enough and you could climb on a boat and head down the amazon when i arrived uh in iquitos in the Amazon, I phoned my mom and she uh, she said I was in medical school in Calgary and I had to come home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I flew back to Lima and then, uh, and then headed home <clears throat> and started medical school that summer.
1: One of the highlights for a lot of surgical residences is, is coming down to Red Dur and uh, spending time with you and, and hearing these stories. And no doubt, I think we all hear these stories and and can see like the impact it's had on you and, and even your your teaching style. I did want to ask how you ended up uh, in Red Deer and, and why why Red Deer and why community general surgery
2: practice Yeah you know I, um, I, I guess there's an idealized answer and probably the real one as well so um, you know the the real answer is in my fifth year, um jobs were hard to come by and i suspect they still are um and i i worked in red deer and i'd met the group in red deer and i, I like the idea of a general practice um you know to to head out and be able to do everything i felt comfortable doing but also work with a supportive group that was willing to expand my skills right so that uh you know, I could uh, do everything I felt comfortable doing and then do some things I didn't feel comfortable doing, but uh, do them with a colleague that was uh, keen on helping me expand my scope. Um, so, it, it was an offer I, I couldn't refuse. I'd also uh, met the love of my life and um, was pretty happy to um, find a place to settle down. I was weighing that against pursuing a hepatobiliary fellowship. Um, and you know, I, I, in retrospect, I, I wouldn't do it any other way, right? I, I came and worked as a generalist for three years. I did thyroid and breast and ATRs, and um, I uh, I learned uh, bariatric surgery with my colleagues in in Red Deer, and then I came back and did my uh, time in Calgary in hepatobiliary surgery to add that to my practice, and then you know you have to. Uh, you have to make some practical decisions, so I, I did give up um, some aspects of my original general practice so that I could focus more. But, um, but yeah, in retrospect, for me, it was a, it was a great choice. Um, at the time, uh, one of the things I really valued was autonomy in my practice, and and so I think uh, at the time, Red Deer offered a lot of that uh, outside of what I might find um, in an academic setting.
0: Sean, one of the really uh, impressive and um, interesting things you've done in terms of citizenship work more recently is has been our advocate, of, of, you know, in terms of general surgery, uh, with the Alberta Medical Association. And without putting a target on your own back, what what have some of the things been that you've really enjoyed about that process? And and maybe you're able to share some of the biggest struggles as well.
2: So uh, yeah, I, I'm the and the general surgery rep to the uh, AMA. And uh, it, it was clear, say, 10 years ago, that we needed a, a more consistent presence um, at the uh, AMA. And then for, for the listeners, that's the Alberta Medical Association, our professional body. Um, uh, partly because general surgery as a section was just being outclassed um, in uh, advocacy. At, uh, that body and many others, by sure. sections that were just more engaged, and uh, you, you know, know, I think the ones that were most effective did have a consistent presence there that understood who was who and how things worked and was able to be more effective. And so, I, I took on that role, and you know, I started with the executive. Right, I, I think I was the secretary when Paul Hardy was the president, and um, and then tried to maintain. Uh, uh, more consistent president, uh, presence because our, our executive changes every two years. So, uh, attending the uh, rep forums, um, it's interesting. The minutes are available to everybody. What, what isn't available to everybody are, are the conversations that happen um, at the breaks or on lunch or at dinner. And, um, you know, general surgery in particular is really insulated i think you know we're we're so hospital based and absorbed in our work that we don't necessarily appreciate um how other sections have structured their practice models and modernized them and being able to see and compare and contrast how general surgery functions against uh, other groups um well, it, it, I guess it gives you a new perspective, right? A, a new idea. And general surgery is clearly a, a laggard in um, innovating its practice models. And th- that's not necessarily uh, a criticism because it comes from a sincere place. We we genuinely love our work, and and we revere the the practice models that were um, that we inherited from our 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 teachers. But um, I, I do think that there's a role to challenge them, you know, and see what other people are doing and try some different uh, approaches. So for me, it, it's you know the, the greatest benefit has just been eye opening and and sharing and uh, and learning from some of the other groups. The greatest challenge, for sure, is just engaging surgeons, right? Because uh, yeah, exactly, they, they love what they're doing and they're busy. Uh, they're happy to be supportive because they they want an advocate. Um, uh, but it's it, you know it's a genuine challenge. Like there's a reason that other sections have uh, been so more effective at that level.
0: You know, you've you've done a, a, an amazing job of, of walking that fine line in terms of advocacy and and uh, and education and come on guys sort of spirit. Um, it, it's, it's been really great. It, it almost sounds like the, your AMA experience to some extent, maybe, and correct me if I'm wrong, has been a bit of a, a of another, uh, educational detour, so to speak. Um, because I, you know, you and your, as you, as you mentioned, uh, Herb, and not by name, your, your lovely life, uh, lovely wife, Bonnie, you guys, I think of both of you as entrepreneurs for sure. And, and, in, we all know that's in many different, uh, areas. But, you know, you recently, it sounds like transitioned, um, into a little bit more focus on maybe the business side of of a general surgical practice, and certainly by your description today, pu- pushing the envelope or or looking at efficiencies and restructuring, um, you know, you and your partners' collective practice. And and I'm not implying it's all you by any means. I don't want your partners to <laughs> to, to you know yeah. ha- have a sense of that. But could you go through how you look at uh, look at that a- element or that aspect of it for us?
2: So uh, you know, I, I think we. Um... Uh, we inherit some biases when we come through t- training and there's a long list of those. But the, the first is that, um, uh, that money or business is, uh, is, I guess, is almost beneath the the purview of a surgeon, right? The surgeon looks after the patients, does surgery and, and the money will sort itself out. We, we try to put our patients ahead of ourselves and, and so, for sure, when I headed out into practice, um, I subconsciously downplayed the, the value of the economics of this job. But you know, as time goes on, you, you, um, you start to realize a lot of things. Um, one is that um, principles in entrepreneurship or business um, though from from a surgical perspective, it might seem like it, it's money oriented or focused, and in a lot of ways it is. But it has so much more to offer that we that we might have uh, dismissed. So, you know, as my as my wife pursued her business, she uh, she runs a, a, a yoga studio that's extremely multifaceted. It's been a a very successful business by any measure, right? It's repeatedly award winning. Yeah, and financially it uh it totally stands on its own feet and uh it has it has brought a lot to the community. Uh and it is a marvelous creative outlet for my wife, right? So it is constantly innovating, there's new programming and new ideas and it's it's an exciting place. And you know, I I, I found even from medical school that a large part of medicine is a bit stifling. right? medical school, it it starts out, there's really no room for creativity or creative thought in in medical school in particular, right? You're really just assimilating knowledge. And then residency is is about uh, learning uh, from others, learning other people's way of doing things. And then and acquiring some familiarity and experience and um, the, the intangibles of our profession have to be assimilated in, in those years. But it, it's a bit like learning an instrument. You know, you start out doing scales and, and then um, you get some technical proficiency. So you play the music other people wrote. And you have to do that for a long time until you have really mastered your medium. And then you can go and create. And that's the exciting time of surgery, right? Where you have really uh, mastered your medium, and now you can you can see where it takes you. You can innovate, uh, just like a musician would. However, that's increasingly difficult for surgeons, right? We we seem to practice in these ever shrinking boxes, and we've lost a lot of autonomy that would allow us the the space to improve and innovate, and and you know to list those boxes. We're all uh, familiar with them. Some of those boxes are, are fee structures. Some of those boxes might be our access to resources. Some of those boxes seem like they should be challengeable, like um, just working in, in, in big systems. If you want to change a form, there's a, a huge amount of uh, process and adversity and, and stakeholder input and so forth. If you want to change a form, it's a, a multi-month or even multi-year process it's very difficult to rapidly innovate. And so often we bend instead of trying to bend the system around us. Entrepreneurship is not like that, right? You are, you're totally, um, your success is contingent on how hard you want to work and your innovation. It is, it is really about innovating and setting yourself apart. And I can guarantee that when any of us applied to medical school, we were never setting out to be the best algorithm followers or the best appliers um, of evidence because that's not, that's not what inspires people. We really wanted to uh, help people work hard and at the end of the day look back, reflect on what we'd done and, and, and be reassured that we had made some personal impact, some difference that, uh, that we left uh, our mark there. That Had somebody else been there, they would have had a, a different or worse outcome. And those opportunities are harder and harder to find. So, you know, I, I have always looked for creative outlets. And, and you know, now I'm, um, you know, 10 years into practice, I, I feel like the steep part of the learning curve is behind me and it's an exciting time to try to innovate and improve. Um, but th- there are a lot of barriers to doing it. And so trying to look at, at business structures it's not necessarily about um, money or or um, you know, getting more money than my um, other roles would, would have supplied per hour. It's about finding a place that I can express myself where I can um, have some more autonomy, where I can create a system and look back and say, you know, I, I made that. I made that difference for people. And so it is an exciting idea when you start thinking of it that way. And in truth, if you really want to pursue excellence, it's it's a real challenge to, to pursue it within public institutions because of the sand in the gears. If I want to if I want to change a process or a form in the hospital, it's I mean I've almost learned to not try because it is so difficult. But if I want to do that in my office, it's a different process the next day, right? Your ability to rapidly iterate and innovate processes is far greater. So I have been inspired by my wife's experience to see what we can do to, to remake models of care. And and I don't want to keep speaking in, in the abstract, but a simple example was um, perianal clinic. So nobody, nobody uh, is passionate about perianal disease. And unfortunately, patients... Uh, suffer for a long time with perianal disease because access isn 't great, and what I wanted to do was kind of examine why that is why um, why are we not meeting what patients are looking for right because at least for central Alberta people could wait over two years to to see a surgeon for a very simple complaint um, and you know, some things we can control, some things we can't, like access to the operating room, right? Those are um, very difficult resource management issues. And as a group, we we can't really affect our total access. However, the vast majority of people with perianal complaints don't need the OR. They just need some of my time. And yet they were still waiting two years. And and so I started looking at, you know, where's the bottleneck? Why is this happening? And, uh, you know, part of it is it it was not well-paid, and it's not glamorous, and nobody really enjoyed it, so they didn't set aside time for it. So I started thinking, well, well, how could I make it um, more attractive, right? Could I build a business model where it was better paid? Could I build a business model where it was more enjoyable to deliver? And then better yet, can I build a business model where patients get better care, right, where they're seen faster, and they get, uh, I guess, more service or or." more things that a patient would want. And it actually didn't take me long to realize that, that uh, that's a, a very achievable goal, right? The first thing I had to do was take all of those disease processes out of the public system into my office. And, of course, you know, this is still publicly funded. But uh, under, under our office, we suddenly have um, a huge amount of autonomy where we can change processes, we can set the scope of practice for um, for nurses, etc. So, you know, we just iteratively improve the process. And so now, and I mean, to help you understand, we we had people with a perianal complaint. They fill out their history and physical form uh, at home, and that gets auto-populated into our electronic medical record. We have our, our Nurse who uh, is dedicated to this problem, right? Her understanding and knowledge of perianal disease is uh, as good as my own because it's an attainable knowledge set. But I couldn't train the the nurses in the hospital to that level because it would be a different nurse every week, and I uh, I don't pay them, and uh, it was difficult to change their scope of practice because I don't really uh, define their role. But in my office, we could easily define that role, and we bought the equipment. We bought hemorrhoid banders, and uh, you know, I, I wrote the a business plan, which again was a totally foreign thing for me, but not difficult to do. You sit down and follow the formula to come up with a business plan where you would uh, make as much or more working in the office looking after hemorrhoids as you would any other activity, and then. Uh, you have to pay for the nurse and you have to pay for the equipment and so forth. And then I, I tried to see how we could tweak it to make sure that we were um, uh, viable and then, and then we can adjust the volume and how we run it. And so uh, a nurse focused uh, clinic that actually has the surgeon there to do procedures offer an opinion and leave is far from innovative, right? It's what the dentist does. It's what, um, a large group of other yeah. um, sectors do where they they apply uh, an expanded scope of practice for a nurse and train them into a, a role, and now the patients get 20 minutes of an expert nurse's time instead of five minutes of my time.
0: Yeah, and it's I, so true. You know, there's so much unintentional inertia, you know, in myself and in our general surgical colleagues, for the most part, that. I wouldn't, you know, you're, I'm sure your story is not unique, but it's darn close to unique. Like we, we just don't engage it uh, this kind of innovative thinking like like we should have. And I think, you know, personally, with with the way that our particular province, Alberta, is moving, I I think it's it's our duty to do so and, and to really put thought into it at this point.
2: Yeah, and you know, when when we realized how successful it was because the, the patients are getting better counseling and care to get way better access mm-hmm. because we cut our wait times from two years to three months. The referring doctors are much happier because they get way better turnaround. Um, and the surgeons are much happier because we have uh, removed some of the onerous portions of that care from them, right? So the nurse is now able to do the documentation. They write the letters and so forth, whereas now the doctor can sign off Rather than uh, spending a large amount of time dictating or writing, and so you realize a lot of efficiencies. Everybody uh, in that system wins. We just never examined what we were doing before, and so it's actually an exciting prototype. And it's hard to get excited about perianal disease, but um, when you see what can be achieved with actually a a minimal amount of effort, and certainly a minimal amount of um, of financial outlay Uh, it's exciting to see because i'd love to apply those principles to other problems
1: you know what you described sounds a lot like
2: um
1: what they've done in edmonton uh, in terms of uh, making a central referral process um and that has they came actually to give us a talk here in calgary not too long ago and it's been impressive what they've been able to do and, and how much inefficiency they've been able to get rid of uh, by doing that. And, and, of course, it sounds like you've taken that even in, even further into the next level.
2: Yeah. So, you know, I I, um, I was uh, catching up with um, uh, a mutual friend that uh, Chad and I have um, the other day on the phone, Scott Gamora. And uh, Chad and I were uh, contemporaries with uh, Scott uh, in residency um uh, Scott was in the same year as Chad, a couple years ahead of me. And um, Scott is uh, a bariatric surgeon in uh, Ontario. Um but you know, I, I've always felt like Scott was at his heart a nonconformist, you know, and uh, he, he just has a a small a small piece of nonconformity in there and, That's and a perfect uh, description of Scotty. Yeah, Absolutely. and you know, I'm sure it's uh, been his greatest gift and curse at uh, various times in his life. But, you know, one of my fondest memories of Scott was a, a talk he gave as a... it could have only been maybe an R3 in uh, residency, and it was a research proposal. And I, it was probably one of the most practice-changing research proposals. He never even did the study. Um, but uh, I think most people that were in attendance still remember the talk. It was about bowel sounds. So he wanted to prove that Bowel Sounds really had no clinical validity. And uh, and just by proposing the concept and demonstrating that there was no evidence behind it, uh, I think, uh, and, and in such a rhetorical way, that without even doing uh, a moment of original research, I'm not sure anybody in Calgary ever listened to Bowel Sounds again. It was so compelling. But it, you know, it was challenging sacred cows. And so uh, when I was chatting with Scott, on the phone the other day. It's interesting how convergent our opinions have become because he um, works as a bariatric surgeon, but he has encountered the same frustrations where it is very difficult to uh, pursue excellence in, in patient care and process um, within a, a big machine. And so he, um, he has started to provide some bariatric services Outside of the public system, um, and uh, you know, he and I would agree that there is not a lot of financial motivation to do that. Right? It's uh, it's so expensive to deliver, and it's so much work that uh, it's it's hard to ever argue that there would be a financial reason to do that. The reason he did it is because it is so satisfying, so rewarding to regain your autonomy, regain your control over the processes so that you can actually look after patients. You can give them what they want. You can give it when they want. It, it's a sort of a silent source of dysphoria in medicine these days where we, we are constantly in a position to fail patients, whether it's poor access and um, various frustrations that we can't address that... Uh, He's realized that it's very exciting to pursue an entrepreneurial um, bend to things, and uh, you know I I don't know how successful it will be from a a business standpoint. Time will tell, but uh, I can say for for the for Scott, it's already successful. It's already a great creative outlet.
1: Dr. Greg, it's it's an incredibly uncertain time, uh, obviously with the COVID pandemic, but also I think in Alberta, even preceding the the COVID pandemic, there's been a a lot of change in the political climate, and I I think you have definitely been kind of at the at the center of of trying to navigate that. What do you think the future holds for surgeons in Alberta?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess the the crux of that question is: um, it's sad that it's so hard to answer, right? The the future is uncertain, and none of us have a crystal ball. And I think uh, the the political events of the last few months were entirely unpredictable, right? The, um, the canceling of the master agreement is unprecedented in any province. Uh, the the changes that this government imposed. Um, were so obviously poorly considered, I don't think anyone took them seriously. Nobody believed they would actually be foolish enough to do it, and then they did. And then, of course, they realized it and um, had to walk it back. But um, it, it is extremely difficult to, to predict. What, what may, maybe I'll reframe your question and say, well, what's the current trajectory? And um, how would I like to see it change? Um I think the the trajectory of medical practice and surgery um I do find somewhat concerning. I find it concerning in how we have maybe uh allowed ourselves to lose some of the control, some of the autonomy and some of the the best parts of being a surgeon. And it's insidious, and we did it partly because uh, we were um, busy enjoying our time with our patients, and because as, as surgeons, we often value um, knowing we we did a good job, you know, over pursuing the political side uh, of things, or the, the administrative landscape. and And maybe we have allowed ourselves to be sidelined a little bit, but... We really have become increasingly divorced from control and autonomy, despite being the experts and um, often the best uh, resource in the room. Our opinions, I think, have become marginalized, and so we are we are frequently controlled by access to resources, by uh, very specific limiting fee structures, administrative pyramids that we don't necessarily get to contribute to, even uh, even guidelines and evidence. Um, while they're clearly a revolution for patient outcomes, they are they are uh, barriers to innovation in a lot of ways, right? They do shuffle us all towards a mean, and then and then p- politics, right? We we are so uh, um, influenced by it, and it's so difficult for us to impact it. So, you know, I I think. Um, one of the frustrations that, that surgeons see is that despite losing control, we carry no less responsibility than we did 10 or 20 years ago, right? We, we are still, uh, morally responsible for poor outcomes. Uh, and, and we still carry that moral injury when we have un, unhappy patients, even if their discontent, uh, is related to things beyond our control. I think, uh, you know most surgeons have uh, a certain learned helplessness where they are happy to continue focusing on the aspects of their job they can control and that they do enjoy but uh, the trajectory I do find concerning that there's a lack of engagement and uh, we are um, maybe maybe losing a battle that we didn't even know we were in and so you know how would I redirect that trajectory I think I think it does uh down to critically appraising the system and the trajectory of it, and then seeing what you can control, what what can we take back, and where can we express ourselves and express our autonomy, and and to be excited about those things, right, to to, uh, have a little bit more unity and engagement and um, build each other up. Uh, I, I think there is ways that we can change the direction of things.
1: I think that term learned helplessness is such an apt one cuz people it's it's like a favorite pastime in the operating room is to complain about you know various problems with with how patients see us and how patients get to the operating room but very rarely do you find anyone actually you know going out and setting out to actually change those processes and and we need it so desperately
2: and, it, and since I started thinking this way, like with a, a more entrepreneurial bend, I, I actually see a world of opportunities. I see opportunity everywhere to improve it. Uh, and the, the barriers that I imagined there, uh, they're not necessarily barriers. There's there's more opportunities than one might guess.
1: Dr. Gregg, um, I think one of the things that I, I also wanted to touch upon before we, we kind of close things out is just talk a little bit about your group in Red Deer. I... Uh, really enjoyed my my rotation when I came down there. And I it's consistently one of the best rotations uh, for Calgary residents and, and Edmonton residents who come down uh, to Red Deer to join you. How do, have you guys maintained such a fantastic group in Red Deer? And, and what do you think it is that makes you guys such a great group?
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm flattered you, you think so. Um, I um I think we do take a, a fair bit of pride in, in um, uh, trying to maintain a, a strong group. We are actually a, a very integrated group, so uh, we have a single office together. We are very inter-reliant on um, uh, sign-overs for call, and so having good colleagues is, is probably the number one most important thing for my quality of life. It allows me to... Uh, trust others with my with the care of my patients, and um, and we, as a group, when we're unified, can accomplish far more than uh, than a bunch of individuals. I think it's it's, it's got to be about a long term principle of of building a strong surgical culture. Once you have a good group and good philosophy, it, it becomes one that people do want to join. And so we probably do recruit a bit above our our weight class. For that reason, is because we we have uh, a good quality of life because we're a unified group because we get along because we uh, support one another. And for me, that was probably one of the, the most constructive parts of my career was those first few years here, where uh, Dr. Ferris would scrub with me. Where you know that was that was almost my first fellowship. You know. Um, and and our ability to get residents rotating through, uh, it would be extremely difficult to recruit well if uh, if you don't get residents routinely, right? Where you you don't get exposed to new people and vice versa, because those are all job interviews, and they're two way job interviews when a resident comes through.
1: Um, in closing, Doctor Greg. Um, I just wanted to get your advice for trainees, and particularly I'm being selfish now as I'm about to uh, go out into the great great uh, wilderness and the great blue yonder myself. What advice do you have for trainees going forward that you wish someone had given you um, when when you were starting out?
2: Uh, I mean, so, you know, <laughs> um, I do think about my time as a trainee and and from my perspective now i do try to improve things for them and so this isn't your question at all but i'm going to answer my own question um you know how can we make things better for trainees and so we have tried to do better long term manpower studies or or at least planning right so we identify a community need and then we identify a good person with an interest, right? So that we, we think that they can serve our community and then we help them get the training that they would need to serve the community and be a good fit. It, it's a, it's a tough place to be when you're a trainee and you're trying to pick a, a fellowship uncertain of where you might end up. But you might be happy in any number of fellowships, uh, or, or types of practice. It's very difficult to to pick one, but that's the advice all trainees get. It's, you know, do what you love and it'll work out. But uh, in truth, if if you had the commitment and support of a group and a job offer and they wanted to help you find that training, it's a a much better place to be as a trainee. And so we've tried to create that scenario, and I think we do recruit a bit better for it. Thinking about, uh, you know, the advice uh, I give the trainees you know we we have medical students and uh i usually i usually tell them if they could be happy in a different profession that wasn't surgery they should do that surgery is for people that couldn't possibly be happy uh, doing anything else
1: you've been listening to cold steel the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.